grieving. Some families will be lost to one another forever. To those of you who face the difficulties of reconnecting with family and establishing ongoing relationships, we say sorry. We offer this apology in the hope that it will assist your healing and in order to shine a light on a dark period of our nation's history. To those who have fought for the truth to be heard, we hear you now. You're listening to Adopt Perspective, a podcast for anyone affected by adoption. I'm one of your hosts, Jo Sparrow. This podcast is a production of Jigsaw Queensland Post-Adoption Support Service. However, the views expressed are those of the people participating, not necessarily Jigsaw Queensland. The podcast discusses adult themes and listener discretion is advised. Hi, it's Jo here. Earlier this year at the National Forced Adoption Apology Anniversary event, several people with lived experience shared their stories of reunion. Two of those stories were told by father and son, Alan Hill and Chris Mundy. I doubt there was a dry eye on the balcony afterwards. And today in the lead up to Father's Day, Alan will again be sharing his story with us as a father who lost his son to forced adoption and their reunion. Welcome to Adopt Perspective, Alan. Thank you, Joe. Alan, well, I am so, yeah, go on. Yep. Pleased to be part of it. <laughs> oh, good. And I am so thrilled to have you join us today because um, I think I told you at the anniversary event that you remind me so much of my adoptive father, who is a really kind and gentle soul, and that your story um, really touched me as it did everyone in attendance that day. And um, a few years back, you and I were also interviewed for the Queensland State Library's oral history video project called Without Our Consent, A Queensland Story. And I know for myself, it isn't always easy to share a story about such a painful experience in our lives. However, I know why I choose to do it. Um, why do you share your story with others? Uh, probably um, chose to join along because my story may help other guys. Mm-hmm. So um, as you can appreciate, there's there's not a lot of um, people who are experienced um, in this field. Mm-hmm. where you can um, talk and help. And um, if what I do helps somebody else, I'm happy. That's great. And I'm, I'm sure you will help some other people. So yeah. um, I thought we might start, if you wouldn't mind <clears throat> taking us back to 1973 and tell us a bit about what life looked like for you when you discovered you are going to become a father. Yeah. Um, I was a young man. Uh, I think I was about um, 16. Um, I was 16. And uh, in those days, times were very different the way um, society viewed um, teenage pregnancies. And um, the first shock was, oh, am I going to go to jail? Yeah. Uh, carnal knowledge was um, something that was enforced in those days. And um, it was very much um, instigated by generally the parents of, of the uh, young ladies. So first was shock and horror. And then um, as we got comfortable, we had to think about a future. And that is um, where do we go from here? And um, we had to discuss um, termination or adoption. And obviously... With our upbringing, both of us were Christians, and um, and uh, 
termination was not an option. So we spoke to a lot of um, uh, social workers, elders of the church and our parents. And um, at the same time, trying to keep it all such a big secret. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. <clears throat> Sorry. It was a hard time. And um, it definitely tried us out. And uh, the, the path was um, to go for adoption from the start. Keeping our baby was never discussed. Um, only maybe mo momentarily, but it was never an option. And um, both of our parents and, and church leaders, etc., cetera, um, basically coerced us into conditioning us to give up a child. Yeah. It's very rough times. Yep. So um, that's what happened when I first found out being a father, about being a father. And um, I, um, I shared it with uh, very few people other than my immediate family. Yeah. So, did you find um, you sort of touched on a little bit? But what was your experience like with hospital and social workers and your parents during this time? You said they <clears throat> didn't really offer up an option of you to keep your son. Um, <clears throat> did you find like what was your experience like dealing with them and talking with them at that time? The um, the social workers at the time were generally people from the church. Yeah. Um, or people uh, associated with church-type um, establishments. And um, they were quite pushy people, believe it or not. They were not warm. They, um, they basically told us that we had done so much wrong and um, the only way to solve the, um, the uh, situation we was in was to give the child up and always hammered that it'll be better for the child. And that um, that weighted, put a lot of weight on, um, on our final decision, which wasn't really our decision yeah. because, because of the, um, the pressure. Yeah. So that's where we went. Yeah. Could you tell us about um, your son's birth and the days immediately afterwards? Were you included at all <clears throat> probably i was probably one of the lucky ones um not exactly legally or or to do with uh tradition and secrecy around birth and of adopted um children i um i took the day off work it was my first day off uh as an apprentice you have a day off you got sack so <laughs> It was um, my first um, sickie, and I went along. Um, Chris's mum had, um, had had a false start over the weekend, and um, and um, uh, her mother, Christine's mother, um, Chris's mother is Christine. So um, her mother come and told me that she was in hospital 
Um, that was on a Sunday morning. And then um, I went up to see her that afternoon. Um, visiting hours were quite strict in those days too. You'd not like today mm-hmm. when you can go whenever you want virtually. Um, they were pretty strict. So I went up and I saw her and uh, she was very scared about going back to the home. And um, after a couple of days, I think she got she got a little bit of help to get started. And, um, and the birth took place on the 15th. And uh, being a young, young bloke, they wouldn't let me anywhere near her. <clears throat> so I waited outside. And uh, at lunchtime, I banged on the door of the, um, of the ward and they said, no, can't come in here. Um, we'll try and have her out in a couple of hours. <clears throat> so about three o'clock, they wheeled her out. And... Um, That was a very hard afternoon. She was exhausted. Very pleased to see me. And um, they took her off to a ward. I think it was M4, unmarried mother's ward. Yeah. And um, the nurses were quite brutal to me, um, and I don't know what went on before with Christine, but found out I had a son. So I stayed with her for a few hours until she went to sleep. And it was near tea time then. And um, I decided to go and get a feed. Hadn't eaten all day. And I met. This is so hard. I know. You take a breath. You take all the time you need. I'm so sorry. You're right. It gets harder. Yeah. So I, I left the hospital and I met. Christine's bigger brother, elder brother, down in the car park. And uh, we went back up. Strangely enough, she was wide awake again. But anyway, we we spoke about family things. And uh, I I stayed with her until visiting hours were done and went home. So in the course of the next week, Christine was prevented from seeing the bub, Chris. And uh, we um, somehow made a bit of a connection with one of the uh, lesser authoritative nurses in the ward. She probably was a beginner because she wasn't as strict as the others. We found out where Chris was. 
and just like everybody else at nursery. We went and tapped on the window of the nursery and asked to see our baby. And the nurse wheeled him out. Yeah. So we both got to hold him. And um, I'll never forget that. So that was the day after the birth. <clears throat> and then our parents come to visit as well. And um, Christine's mum, I don't remember her dad being present at this particular visit, but um, we said, would you like to see your grandson? So she was puzzled about how, how did we actually manage to do this. And um, we took her around and um, she got to see uh, Chris. And she said, oh, he looks just like you, Alan. <laughs> uh, time to change a bit. But um, Christine's mum was quite sympathetic at that point. Um, and I think, given time, she probably regretted the decision made. And then um, I think the next day my parents came up and um, I asked if they'd like to see their grandson. My father was horrified. And he said, oh, they won't allow you to do that. And I said, we can get to see him. So I took him in to um, see Chris and, uh, and mum. Dad wasn't too interested. Um, that's probably a fairly harsh statement, but it's he was one of the key drivers in my decision. Yeah. Uh, and uh, so they got to see their grandson, as did Christine's brother. Um, and then the uh, head matron kept coming around to the bed, sign this piece of paper, sign this piece of paper. And uh, Christine started to fill out um, some sort of form. And they were asking questions about the father, me, and uh, she was able to give some information. And, and the nurse, the matron walked in while she was filling that out. And she said, oh, don't worry about that stuff. Just put your signature on the bottom. It was push, 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 push. Um, one thing I, um, I haven't mentioned, which is a step back in my story. Um, Christine was prevented in the labor ward from seeing Chris. They had a barrier up. And that's the way it was. So 
I got more comfortable a little bit with what was becoming the inevitable. And the last the last time I saw Chris I was by myself. Sorry. <laughs> and um, I made some promises, which which remain personal. And one of my biggest regrets is um, the day Christine had to. Um, relinquished custody I wasn't there I was back at work it still killed me so that's that's where we got to that's um, that's when Chris was born 15th of May, 1973. Never forgot the date or the week. I'm so sorry. I need to take a drink. No. Let's have a break. <laughs> I just need to have a drink. Yeah, you go, go have a drink. One, one All right. <laughs> That's a bit better. Uh, Compose myself. I'm composing myself too. <laughs> I can't begin to tell I you how much I appreci appreciate you talking about this because I know it's like splitting a vein. It's um, yeah. it can be very difficult. It is, and um, you're the second person I've shared that with in 49 years. Oh, I'm so on it. Chris was the other one. Um, yeah, that's cool. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm just a bloke. It's much harder for the girls. Much, much harder. I think one of the things for the men, though, that I'm taking from that is how much you are dismissed in that process as not being important. Yes, most in, definitely. In any way. Yeah. I was probably seen as the troublemaker. Yeah. that's, And I just can't imagine what that does to a young man. Yep. You never get over it. No. And um, it definitely changes the way you think about life. Like, it's, it's, it's hard to, um, like, 16 at the time. I'm now 65. Yeah. Um, and it's um, it has shaped my life. Yeah, yeah. Well, so I was going to ask you about um, what happened afterwards. Like, how did were you expected to return back to life as normal? Like, I think that's like um, afterwards? 
Yeah. I think that's definitely what everybody thought. You just give up your baby and, and know that you've done the right thing mm. and that they, knowing that they have a good future with somebody you have never met, never known, yeah. um, and w- never will know. It's not like it is now where we, we have been granted permission to meet our son. Mm. Um, back in those days, there was never to be contact, never, ever. So it was like, I don't know whether it's worth than losing an infant to, uh, to death, to know that you have an infant or, it, or, or your child and, and you will never meet them, you will never know. whether you made the right decision. Yeah. And absolutely no control over the situation. Yeah. Yeah. So it I was can, hard. I can remember um, feeling like I was in a concrete box as an adoptee, like knowing I was at the time believing that I was never going to be able to find my parents. Yeah. Um, and it was maddening. It was yeah. maddening. I can't imagine from the other perspective. Yeah. Um, Just the same, probably. Yeah. Frustrating, anger building. Alan, how did, you know, so we've talked about immediately afterwards, but as you sort of move through your life then, what has adoption's effect been on your life as, as you've gone on? Well, probably the first effect um, was the damage that... Um, what we'd been through um, did to our relationship. We were very young, but um, we were deeply in love. It might sound silly at 16 years old, but no. it was strong for us. Um, Christine was doing it really tough, and I had to pay the strong party and all this and try and hold it all together. And, Later that year, Chris was born in May, later in that year, 3rd of November, we got engaged. We're going to get married and things were going to be great. But the pain of the loss was just too much. It smashed us. So that was more regret. And it took a long time for me to get comfortable with that. And I'm sure Christine had the same issues. Um, my relationship with my parents was never the same and my family I very much became a loner um, I ran my own race I um, I lost um, some friends or people that I thought were friends and um, I just became a loner and uh Eventually, I met somebody else, my, my wife, and um, that was quite a few years after Chris was born. And uh, for a long time, it, it, it took, I was sort of in, in a mode where I had to get established in life before I considered family and not being able to support a baby in the first place, it probably drove me to being um, 
extra cautious about um, having a home and, and being able to support baby. Yeah. So I was 29 when, um, when our first son was born. <clears throat> and uh, that was quite late in life mm -hmm. um, back then. Uh, but we were established. I owned my own home. I um, had a good job. And um, I was able to support my family. Yeah. So it, it probably changed the way, and it was probably part of growing up too, but it definitely had a bearing on the delay to start a family um, as much as I wanted to, and Robin certainly wanted to. Uh, yeah, so, but, and Robin knew about Chris from our second date. Yeah. So I hid nothing. And um, Robin's probably the only per other person that I had discussed it with in all those years. <clears throat> and um, she knew right from the start that one day I would meet Chris. I didn't know his name was Chris. <laughs> <laughs> but... Um, which is a little uncanny in itself, like a lot of coincidences. Chris's middle name is Alan. Oh, get out. And his mother's name was Christine. So. <laughs> there are so many of those things. I've found things in my family too that are just these weird coincidences you know, yeah. of names. You just yeah, they really be coincidences, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. So... Other things that changed is um, I don't go to church anymore. Mm -hmm. I keep my beliefs to myself, but I cannot associate with church people. Mm -hmm. um, and that in itself has not held me back. Chris is a minister mm -hmm. or qualified minister. He's had a few good jobs um, and certainly it hasn't got in the road, but I have a mistrust for the church community generally. Understandable. That's terrible, but that's the way it is. <clears throat> so um, you're asking about how it affected the rest of my life. Um, even though Robin was totally supportive, I still had my private times of frustration and anger. And um, regret, mistrust, all those things. And just uh, I'd go through weeks at a time of downs, which I talked myself out of. I, I never sought any help over the years for that until after I met Chris, actually. And... Uh, they, my family probably wondered why I had such strong mood swings, but I probably threw myself into my um, into my work. I'm a twelve hour a day, sixty hours a week man, and I always have been. Yeah. Until now, I'm retired. <laughs> <Finally>. <laughs>
but I still have have nights where I'm awake for a few hours, just going through it all again. Mm. And um, yeah, so it has greatly affected me. Um, and I know, I don't know that that will ever go. I'm sure it won't. Yeah. I just want to be the best that I can be for Chris and my grandchildren, yeah. who are my only grandchildren so far. <laughs> so they're very special people. Yeah. Yeah. Answer your question? It sure did. Um I did wonder, though, too, did it impact the way you parented your later children with Robin? <clears throat> Do you think? I think so. Yeah. I, I think so, I'm, and I couldn't put my finger on how. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was quite strict on my kids in their teens, probably a lot stricter than a lot of parents were. Um, it's a difficult time for kids, and... I would have preferred to have been their guide rather than their strict father. Yeah. Probably <laughs> old man. Yeah. But um, I hope they don't regret that. I probably do. You would have had a lot of messages when you were a teenager about how you'd done the wrong thing or being the bad person or, you know, so I imagine that was very much in mind for you when you were no doubt. teenage sons, yeah. No doubt. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah it's, it's probably um, carrying that trauma through my life that's, um, yeah. that's formed the way I think as well. Yeah. It has, it has a huge bearing on the way you think, your upbringing. So. And it, I've heard the saying that you will father how you will father. Yeah. I bloody hope not. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, um, yeah. So what led you to having contact um, with Chris? And I guess, well, let's start there. What led you to having contact? Um, I made a promise. And... Um, I tried quite a few times and uh, to no avail. Jigsaw was very early in its life when I first started. I think Chris was only about four years old. Um, and to be frank, terrible thing to say, but I'm glad I didn't find him then because of the turmoil it would have Put through his life. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I tried a couple of times and uh, I actually approached his mother to see if she had had any news. And um, she was too busy with her kids. I didn't have any kids at the time. And uh, it didn't get serious until the legislation was changing, changed, excuse me, uh, which allowed contact or uh, contact which had to be agreed to on both sides. 
So when that changed, the day after it changed, um, Kristen and I had contacted each other for the first time in years. And uh, we decided to, um, to put a letter with the uh, family services mob, which basically said that we had a bit of medical information in there. And uh, we base, basically left a letter saying that we were awaiting contact. And we thought, oh, that'll happen pretty quick. But no, it didn't. Mm -hmm. um, obviously, the, um, the process has to start from both sides before either party knows. Um, and uh, Chris was 18 at the time. And Christine and I had spoke about um, what effect we would have on his life at 18, um, particularly in view of the fact that what we went through in those early years, we thought, and both recognising the impact that it had on us, um, trauma and turmoil is not a good place to put Chris into. So that was about it. And... Uh, I had just started my um, my family with my boys at that, that time. Uh, my my eldest Peter and uh, and Warwick were born. Warwick was a little baby in nappies, I think. And uh, life sort of changed a little bit at that point. It um, it sort of gave me a bit of hope, and also put a bit of a chapter to bed, so to speak. We, um, I'd say both Christine and I went about building our families and, and, and that for quite a few years. And uh, it was about um, nearly 10 years ago now. Um, I, I'm a technology dinosaur as you've already been <laughs> this morning. Uh, I didn't have Facebook. I didn't have any of that sort of stuff. Mm. I just went to work every day, did my stuff. And uh, I can't remember. Chris must have already had information on his mother, Christine. And um, he, had, uh, he had got some photos and, and a number of things. He knew my name and a few bit, bits and pieces. And Chris, in his position, obviously knew where to go looking to find things. I got a phone call at work um, from uh, Family Services, I think it was, and I don't recall what the lady's name was, but... Uh, she said, do you know why I'm ringing you? It was her opening line. And, and I said, where did, you, where, did you, where did you say you were from again? And she said, and I thought, this is not a hoax call, but there's only one thing it could be, but I played dumb. 
And uh, she said that um, she had received a request from my son to, um, to find some further information about me. And uh, at the same time this was going on, one of my sons had um, received a message in, uh, from Facebook um, asking if he knew me and, and my birthday. And uh, he uh, said to me one morning, I was going somewhere with him in the car, and he said, no, nah, there's this old bloke with no hair and plays guitar <laughs> looking for you, Dad. <laughs> I had no idea. For the first little bit, I had no idea who who it was. But later on, when I look back on it, I know who it was now. It was Chris. Um, and my first contact with Chris uh, was a message sent to me, um, not by Facebook. I think it might have been a text message or something to... Um, Ask if I was Alan Hill, born on my birthday. Yeah. I was away working at the time and uh, I was uh, gobsmacked. That's a contact, a real contact. Yeah. And uh, my wife joined Facebook, not me, my wife, and we found Chris's profile and and had a look through some photos there. And there were some photos of me when he was born. Oh, wow. And at, at the um, engagement of myself and Christine, I looked at him and I thought, my God, that's me. That's, um, and my wife looked at him and, and I said, how did these get on the internet? And uh, some of the photos I had been looking for for years. Yeah. Obviously, Christine had kept them. So that started a journey. And Chris being so experienced in this field basically led me through the path before we met. Yeah. We for exchanged. our listeners, Chris worked in the um, post-adoption support service environment. Yeah. So that's why yeah. he knew so much. Yeah. Carry on. Yeah, so he um, he suggested a path where we exchanged information at first and, and slowly built a relationship through that of who we were, like who Chris was and about his growing up, who I was and who Chris's ancestors were, my grandparents and all that sort of family history stuff. Yeah. And um, eventually we came to the touchy subjects about his birth, the day he was born and, and everything. And um, on a timeline, I think this probably went on for five months before we actually decided that we would um, meet face to face. And at that point, we had not even had a phone call. We, we, the guidelines was to slowly build up a relationship. So um, the day I met him was the first time I heard him speak. 
pretty magic. Yeah. And um, yeah, we met at the Rotunda at um, Sutton's Beach and uh, spent quite a few hours chatting, different things we'd done through life and um, school days. And yeah, it was magic. Yeah. And that was uh, 10th of December. And it's also my my other eldest boy's uh, birthday. He wasn't around that day. I'm not sure where he was. But... So uh, two and a half weeks later, it was Christmas. I met my grandchildren. Cool. Very cool. Yeah. So I'm probably sneaking away from the... Uh, from the subject line here, but that's what um, I see as my reward. But I'm ever careful that um, I have a family um, that Chris is a part of, but he's not a part of. Mm-hmm. It's it's um, it's awkward. Yeah. So once we'd met face to face. It was three or four days a week. Chris wasn't in a bad, wasn't in a good place. He'd um, gone through divorce and had a bit of trouble. So um, he bought a um, bought a house, the one he lives in now, and um, he's not much of a um, of a tradie. He is now. <laughs> he's had a bit of training. <laughs> But, um, yeah, it was um, really rewarding to um, work with him in his house. We renovated the house. We painted the house. He learned how to swing a hammer and use a saw and all that sort of stuff. Oh, just the metaphor of that, of you guys working on rebuilding something. <laughs> yeah. Together. What a good way and, to, to build that relationship. Oh, yeah. Perfect. And uh, we'd stop every hour or so, sit down and have a man-to-man and then uh, get on with it. It was so good. And it was um, awkward running a business, looking after my family and going to see Chris four days a week. So inevitably that daily contact faded away um, but we're still I feel we're still very close and uh, it's great to see him building he's built a new family and and uh, and we have a connection that we never had we miss so much there's a big hole where we have no history but we're putting a few pieces in there yeah. yeah, it's cool. Um, you probably answered this, but I guess um, what has this relationship brought to your life as far as, I guess, healing? Um, the wounds will never be healed, but they've healed enough just to leave a few little scars there. Mm-hmm. Uh, nothing can replace what we lost. But uh, 
very, very happy to um, have a father-son relationship and a granddad-grandchild relationship. It's um, I don't see enough of them and I can't see enough of them. Yeah. But uh, it's, uh, it is a very special relationship. Yeah. Probably that nobody else could ever appreciate. Yeah. But it's it's magic. Yeah. <sighs> How's that? That's great. <laughs> I'm so happy for you. Yeah. Um, there are a lot of people that are not so not so um, lucky. No, they they think of them every day. They're challenging relationships sometimes to navigate. Um, yeah. And sometimes it's a matter of acceptance and and yeah. changing expectations and things. But I'm so gl- glad that for you and Chris that it has been a positive yeah. experience. Yeah. yeah, definitely. So um, you, yep. you would Please know go. the – sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. What we can say. Right. You're right. Okay. Um, the Queensland and national apologies have now happened. Um, we're about to – celebrate or commemorate, I should say, next year, the 10 years um, since the National Apology for Forced Adoptions. Um, yeah. what, is, what did they mean to you, if anything? It's, um, it's something that I personally don't put a lot of value on. Mm. Um, everybody's adoption was different. Um, and forced adoption is a very loose term as far as I'm concerned, like from where somebody was handcuffed and their baby taken away. It's not always like that. It's uh, manipulation and coercion by, um, by people pushing you into a situation that they think is the best thing for you and taking your choice and options away. That's what I see forced adoption is. And, and the people that, that perpetrated that in my life never said sorry. So a stranger doing a media release saying sorry meant nothing for me. I very much agree that the term um, forced adoption sometimes can be problematic because I think a lot of people think, well, I'm not a forced adoption because they've heard the worst end of the scale of the things that happened. Um, And so they think it doesn't apply to them and they think they can't come to, say, Jigsaw to our forced adoption support service for help. But if if you were born between sort of 1950 to, you know, the mid-'80s and sometimes even a little bit further, you can get that support because, um, because the coercion was just rife in society at that time. It was. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. And the reality is if, if our parents didn't do it, somebody else would have. Yeah. Because of our age, we were viewed as kids and that we had no idea of um, what we were in for. And maybe we didn't. But I see today so many options and so many success stories of people in exactly the same situation. Yeah. It is possible. So 
there was just a total unwillingness and a, um, a staunch, stiff upper lip type society that was back then. This is the way it is and mm-hmm. whatever you think doesn't count. Yeah. Ellen, um, thank you so much for sharing your story with us today. Um, I know there are going to be a lot of people who are going to listen in to learn a great deal from you. And um, and like I said, I'm, I'm honoured that you shared it with me and I'm um, I'm really grateful that you shared it all because I know I, it was emotional and I know that probably the impact of just talking with me today is probably going to be felt for a few days at least. Um, no doubt. <laughs> I've had a few sleepless nights in the last two weeks. <laughs> <laughs> just even sharing this space with you all, there'll be an impact yeah. for me. I, I yeah. can assure you. Yeah. Um, so thank you so much. And um, I'm very appreciative. You're welcome, Joe. And um, thank you to our listeners for joining us. I'll pop some relevant links up on our podcast notes page. And meanwhile, do you have a story you'd like to share with us? If you'd like to be interviewed for the podcast, jump onto the main podcast page of the Jigsaw Queensland website and complete the, the prospective guest form that you'll find there. And note that a doc perspective can be listened to by people all over the world. Bye for now. Thanks for listening to the Adopt Perspective podcast. If you'd like to find out more, go to the podcast page on www.jigsawqueensland.com and you'll find a wealth of information and resources on the website. If you reside in Queensland, you can reach Jigsaw Queensland's Forced Adoption Support Service on toll-free 1800 210313 or you can call Jigsaw on 07 3358 If you live in another state of Australia, you can still call the Forced Adoption Support Service number and your call will be answered by the Forced Adoption Support Service in the state that you're calling from. In every other state, Relationships Australia operates this service. A big thank you to Matt Sparrow for composing and recording our original theme music. Until next time, I'm Jo Sparrow saying farewell from Adopt Perspective, a podcast for anyone affected by adoption. Thank you.